Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumwatt Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumwatt or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumwatt.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, today, as you maybe have already figured out, we are wrapping up a series that we have been in for the last two months titled Thriving in Babylon. This morning is, in fact, part eight of eight, which means that the cruise ship is almost back to port. And uh, if you've not been here with us for every week, you have missed out on all the fun that we've been having since the beginning of this vacation. Uh, That's actually a terrible analogy since, you know, cruises... They're, they're pretty terrible. Just had to kind of lace that in there. Uh, this series has been way better than a cruise, but I digress. Point being, if you have not been here for every week, go and catch yourself up at grumlaw.com slash messages or find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you grab those podcasts. Throughout this series, uh, we have touched on a lot of subjects and tensions that I'm confident a lot of you, both the Christian and the non-Christian alike, uh, have been feeling. You, you probably need to lean into this conversation more than you realize. So again, I want to really encourage you to go and listen to this series in its entirety. Now, as mentioned last week, uh, Daniel chapter 6, there's 12 total chapters in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6 was sort of the final chapter of Daniel, our central character in this text, doing life in Babylon, with the remaining books being largely prophecy. So, So following lockstep with this pattern that we've been following throughout the series, we're marching right on chapter by chapter to those final chapters in the book of Daniel, which we find near the end of the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible, which means that today, if you know your Bible, and you know the end of Daniel. We're going to be talking about, you ready for this? End times, the second coming of Christ, and the fulfillment of prophecy. Yeah, that's about the reaction I was expecting, and there's probably a good reason for that maybe lack of enthusiasm. Uh, The reason is the same people that I cast a lot of blame upon for giving Christianity somewhat of a bad rap. Who, Who are these people, you ask? They are, of course, the weirdos. Same people referenced earlier in this series who give Bible tracts in lieu of generous tips at restaurants. Uh, They are the same people that smell like patchouli. Same people that hand out apples on Halloween. The the people that made you perhaps hesitant to come walking through the doors or checking out a place like this. Uh, If you have been fearful of these people in the past, I'm just telling you, uh, you have a reason to be. You probably should be a little scared of these people. Uh, I can't even tell you that there aren't any of these people at Grumlaw, but I can promise you they don't represent the majority. Uh, they just so happen to often be the loudest. Anyway, some of these weirdos, they get quite obsessive over end times and the second coming of Christ to, to the point that they stop witnessing, they stop serving, they stop giving, that they stop being a light for Christ on this earth in Babylon. Instead, that's basically all they talk about. That They can tell you which beast from Revelation Vladimir Putin is, that the vaccine is the mark of the beast, and they can certainly tell you the exact date when Christ is going to return. In fact, there have been many, many books written on this particular topic. Some of you uh, boomers, that generation on up, you might remember uh, this particular book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Don't, don't let this panic you. Don't worry. It did not occur in 1988. You didn't miss it. Uh, this is actually a really, really funny story. Uh, when this obviously did not occur in 1988, the rapture, which is often what we refer to as the second coming of Christ, uh, when this didn't occur in 1988, the author simply revised the title and re-released the book as 89 reasons why the rapture will occur in 1989. Uh, obviously, it didn't happen there. This is a true story. This exact same guy predicted that Jesus would return in May of 2011. That, of course, didn't occur either. Uh, then he said, oh, wait. <laughs> miscalculation, I meant October of 2011. 
That did not occur either. I'm sure he's still continuing to guess, even if he somehow like coincidentally nails the date. I'm just convinced that God's going to switch. He's like, there ain't no way I'm sharing any of the light here with, with this weird guy. Uh, same weirdos that are responsible, by the way, for, for billboards like this. Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. Like you were just enjoying this nice drive up north with your family on a holiday weekend. And, and suddenly you're having to engage your 12-year-old in a conversation about Judgment Day. Again, it's like, thank you, weirdos. Here's my point, because... I really need to move on. There are certainly weirdos out there, but remember the exception, not the norm, who, who get way too caught up in this stuff. But I'll also say there's a compelling case that we, as the majority of followers of Jesus, that, that we probably don't talk about this enough. See, if the weirdos, and it's like, how many times is this guy gonna say weirdos in, in one talk? I'm trying to break records here this morning. If the weirdos are on the far end of the spectrum, like they're way over here, most of us are probably on the complete opposite. And like so many things, the balance is probably somewhere in the middle. In fact, to that point, this is certainly worth pointing out, 25% of the Bible is prophecy. 25, a quarter of the Bible is prophecy, predictions about the future. For every one mention of the first coming of Christ, there are actually eight mentions of his second coming. So no, to be clear, we're not gonna begin talking about this once a month, but we probably ought to be talking about this more often than we currently are. And as I think you're going to find this morning, this, this isn't something to be feared. And it's probably not as strange or as confusing as you've maybe felt like it is in the past. And, and before we dive into this remaining chapters here of the book of Daniel, I want to direct our attention to some of the words of Jesus himself. And I think these words ought to be used as our guiding light on passages such as these regarding end times, regarding the second coming of Christ. So we jump here into Matthew chapter four, one of the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. And here he tells us a little bit about the end times. So it says there, later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when is all this gonna happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Jesus, we're, we're really, really curious. When is this going to happen? Jesus told them, I think we should all be like pretty curious about this, right? Jesus is about to tell us uh, about the end times. He says, don't let anyone mislead you. First words out of his mouth regarding this. He says, don't let anyone mislead you. If we were to translate this in more modern terms, if we were to really ask ourselves what Jesus is saying, he's saying, don't get sidetracked. Don't let this end time stuff be, be the area that you dedicate all of your attention, all of your time. Don't let this become the main thing because there's something else that ought to be of way more importance for the follower of Jesus, which he's actually about to tell us about. He, he says, for many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah, that they will deceive many. And, and you'll hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yet, yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom that there will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. Followers of Jesus will experience persecution. You'll be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures, that the follower of Jesus who keeps the faith to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then, then the end will come. 
Now, now what's really, really interesting is that literally every generation in the history of the world, throughout all of human history, has seen most of the signs referenced here come to fruition at some point during their lifetime. War, famines, earthquakes, persecution, false prophets, rampant sin. I mean, that kind of sounds a lot like our world right now, doesn't it? But, but do not miss the final thing that Jesus says right here. Again, he says, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then, then he says, the end will come. Right here is, is, is why I'm so often bothered by conversations surrounding end times and the second coming of Christ. Because so much attention is paid to all that other stuff, war, famine, persecution, and, and almost no attention is paid to this passage right here. And, and Jesus very clearly tells us, this is going to be the sign that the end has come. When the good news about me, the life-changing, eternity-transforming message of Jesus is preached throughout the entire world. Here's my point. As a follower of Jesus... We should care a whole lot more about bringing the life-changing, eternity-transforming message of Jesus to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, to the ends of the earth than we should be about when specifically Christ is gonna come back. Jesus commands us right here. He says, don't get sidetracked. He's saying, leave the when up to me and you just worry about who specifically who I have strategically placed in front of you, who I have strategically placed in your life to be a witness for me. The, the end time stuff, that's not the main thing. The, the main thing is taking the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So, so with all that as the backdrop and the guiding light for this conversation, Let's dive into the remaining chapters of the book of Daniel. We're in a single vision. God shows Daniel what's going to happen from that particular moment in history in Babylon all the way to the second coming of Christ. That's like a, that's a big gap of time. So, so that means I got to move here pretty quick. Now, in this particular prophecy, uh, Daniel is given a vision of four different beasts. Now, if you've ever dove into these particular chapters of Scripture, the latter half of the book of Daniel, perhaps the book of Revelation, I I'm guessing you, like me, have wondered to yourself, it's like, what is with all of the beast talk? Uh, and, and I'm telling us, it probably shouldn't be as strange as we maybe make it out to be. In fact, I think if we actually just swapped the word beast with animal, it would be a lot less confusing and a lot less strange to us. Beast just isn't a word that we use very uh, normally and commonly in our English language. But nations for virtually all of human history, that they've been represented by some type of beast or animal. Even right here in America, what has long been the symbol of the American people, right? An eagle, specifically a bald eagle. Around election time, the Democrats are represented by donkeys. The Republicans are represented by elephants. It's not maybe as strange as we maybe make it out to be. So this vision of four animals, four beasts is given to Daniel. We're going to rip through these first two here and summarize them, and then we're going to go verse by verse here through those last two beasts. Beast number one it is a lion with eagle's wings. Now, for all you boomers, quickly the imagery of like an eagle's or Led Zeppelin album cover comes to mind. But, but in this vision, the wings of the lion, they're torn off. That the lion is then lifted up, and the mind of a human being is given to the lion. This clearly represents the Babylonian empire that Daniel found himself in. You might actually recall earlier in this series, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, whom we talked about for a lot over the first parts of this series, he, he loses his mind. He goes insane. He is driven from human society. That that's the imagery of the wings being plucked off. 
But, but eventually his mind is restored after spending seven years in the wilderness and he's lifted back into his place of power. He, he receives all of the honor that he once received as king. His mind is quite literally given back to him. Beast number two is, is a bear specifically a bear that very clearly has two different sides to it with one side larger than the other and it has three ribs in its mouth. Now, now, now get this, I, I think this is so fascinating and hopefully three others of you think this is interesting as well. We're gonna nerd out here for a minute. As you might recall from two weeks ago, uh, eventually the Babylonians, they were overthrown and conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. That is what represents those two sides of the bear, one being the Medes and the other side being the Persians. But one side was larger because eventually Persia would conquer the Medes and it would just be the Persian empire. The ribs in the bear's mouth represent the Babylonians whom they conquered. That, that's beast number two, on to beast three. And again, we'll start going verse by verse here in verse six. It says, then the third of these strange beasts appeared and it looked like a leopard. It had four bird's wings on its back and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. This beast we know for certain represents Greece and Alexander the Great specifically. Now, now the reason that it's a leopard with wings is because it represents speed because Alexander the Great, listen to this, he conquered the entire world from Egypt all the way to India in 10 years. That, that is fast, like lightning quick. The four wings and the four heads are mentioned because Greece would eventually be divided in four ways. And again, this absolutely happened. After Alexander the Great, the kingdom had a bit of a power struggle and it was eventually divided amongst four different generals. And I want you to keep in mind, this was written 200 years before any of these events actually transpired. And then on to verse seven here where we have our fourth beast. It says, then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, very strong. It devoured and it crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts and it had 10 horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. This beast here, this fourth one, clearly represents Rome who would eventually conquer the Greeks. The things like the iron teeth represented its great strength, especially its military strength and its technological sophistication. Now, now some of you, again, if you've ever dove again, the passages of scripture like this into Revelation, you've perhaps had this thought at some point. It's like, why do these visions always seem to involve horns? It's like, why, why is there always horns as kind of like a central theme? Like a lot of stuff in scripture, it perhaps only seems weird or maybe confusing because we just never had it explained to us. So, so to that end, let me just kind of ask you a question. Uh, how many of you, and I'm gonna ask you to participate even though I don't know what you're actually doing on the other side of this camera. Uh, how many of you have animals living in your home? What, what we would call pets, right? Probably the majority of you actually. Now, now of you pet people, how many of you does that pet have horns? Any? Yeah, probably not any hands going up right now. Maybe a couple of you living up in Clio or Byron. Why not? Because horns, as we all know, they can cause destruction, right? They're powerful. They're usually for that animal used as like a defense mechanism. And that's the imagery right here. Horns represent power. So this little horn, it looked human, but it had something subhuman about it. Most biblical scholars agree that this is the first prophecy specifically speaking of the Antichrist. We're gonna skip ahead here now to chapter eight where this vision continues. It says the four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. 
At the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. There will be a spirit, the spirit of Babylon, the Antichrist that goes before him. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He he will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people, the the people of God, the Israelites. He, He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He'll destroy many without warning. He'll even take on the prince of princes in battle, God himself, but he will be broken, though not by human power. Now, now of those generals in ancient Greece, there's one that rose to power whom was especially ruthless. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He rose to power in 170 BC. This guy was truly Hitler before Hitler. In a single day when he marched into Jerusalem, he murdered 80,000 Jews. He issued coins that has image on one side and on the other, an inscription that read, King Antiochus, God in the flesh. It gets worse. After conquering Israel, he set up a statue of himself inside the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, and he made Jews worship him. He forced Jews to eat pig flesh in the temple, a big no-no in the Jewish faith tradition. He is blaspheming the name of God. He is arrogant about his power. He he is looking and defying the living God, the same God we talk about here on Sunday mornings. Now now listen to this, and again, this is so interesting. Out of nowhere, at the peak of his powers, Antiochus develops a stomach virus. He goes insane, and shortly after that, he dies. He was broken, though not by human power, exactly as predicted in Daniel chapter eight, hundreds of years earlier. Now, Now what's really interesting and this is where kind of having the benefit of being here for every single week of the series really helps out, is that even though virtually every biblical scholar agrees that this passage is clearly talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, Jesus, John, Paul, three of our you know, central heroes of the New Testament, they all make reference to Daniel chapter eight as pointing to the future. It's like, what's up with that? Because clearly this is talking about something at this point, by the time Jesus was on this earth, was already done. This is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. So why do they continue to make reference to Daniel chapter eight as again, pointing to the future? Throughout this series, we reminded you that Babylon doesn't merely refer to some civilization that existed some 2,500 years ago. Instead, it points to an evil spirit that has been influencing our world, influencing our culture for all of human history right up to present day. So specifically speaking, yes, this prophecy is pointing to a particular point in history with this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, but it's also pointing to the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of this world, the Antichrist, whom has always been influencing our world and whom will continue to influence our world. So, and I pointed out similar details throughout this series, it's not an accident. Different time, different leaders, different nations, the exact same spirit, the spirit of Babylon. In that vein, let me help us actually connect some dots here real quick. In Daniel chapter three, you might recall King Nebuchadnezzar, he erects this gold statue and he says, everybody, everyone has to bow down to this thing and worship it at certain points during the day, including you Jews, you're just so old fashioned, you continue to insist on worshiping only one God. The Jews, of course, were the people whom were most offended by this new rule, by this new law. So Nebuchadnezzar looks at the Jews and he says, the Jews are the problem. So we need to kill them by throwing them into a chamber. Maybe sounds a little familiar. Fast forward to 170 AD, what we just talked about. Antiochus goes marching into Jerusalem. He says, the Jews are the problem. He has 80,000 of them killed in a single day. Fast forward even further, World War II. Hitler, who's really Antiochus 2.0, he rises to power and he's very passionate about what? Killing the Jewish people. 
present day, and this has been happening for years and years and years and years, there are many people in the Middle East who are dead set on conquering Israel and doing what? Killing the Jewish people. Now you can hear that and think, wow, what a crazy coincidence. Wrong. Different points in history, different nations, different psychotic leaders, the exact same spirit. So so Daniel, he's given this this whole vision from that particular point in history that he found himself all the way to the end, to the second coming of Christ. And and that right there is where we're going to wrap this thing up, back to Daniel chapter 7. He says, I watched, this is Daniel saying, I watched his thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. The ancient one being a reference to God the Father. His clothing was as white as snow. He is pure, he is holy, he is set apart. His hair like purest wool. He is all-knowing, he is full of wisdom. He sat on a fiery throne. He is all-powerful with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions upon millions of angels, an uncountable number of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a while longer, but only because God decided so. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man. Now, now if you've ever spent any time reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, those four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, you know that this is one of Jesus' favorite references to himself, a son of man. That this is where Jesus was drawing this from. And again, it says someone like a son of man because it's not just like the Jesus that we had here on earth for those 30-some years. It's somebody now who has ascended back into heaven, united with this heavenly father, united with the Holy Spirit. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, God the Father, and was led into his presence. Now, a really, really interesting note here, and some of you, you might already be connected to these dots. When Jesus is on trial during his time on earth, and he's about to be put to death by the religious men of that day, by the Pharisees, that they're continually pounding him with this question, are you the Messiah? And they're asking it aggressively. Are you the Messiah? Because they're just so offended that Jesus has actually been claiming this. And Jesus, with such staunch confidence, looks right back at these religious men and he quotes Daniel 7. He says, I am one like a son of man. And that certainly would not have gone lost, again, on these religious men who knew the scriptures well. They knew that Jesus was quoting Daniel chapter 7. And then we wrap this conversation up here in verse 14. Again, talking about Jesus, Jesus was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And and to everyone who's watching right now, if you forget everything else that I've said today, don't miss this. In this vision given to Daniel, Referring to the second coming of Christ, Jesus was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Church, here's the entire message in three words. He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. He will return. 
Let us not be a group of people that argues over trivial details like the exact date or, or signs of the beast or music preferences or political lines. Let none of that rise to the main thing. Instead, like we see in this vision given to Daniel, let all of that become background noise to who should actually be the main thing. Jesus. Because church, make no mistake about it. There is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And on that day when Jesus returns, suddenly all of that stuff that we once thought was so important will fade to the background. And all that will matter is Jesus. What will quickly come into focus is the degree to which we leveraged our time on this earth for his kingdom. Church, undoubtedly, there are some people out there who, who talk way too much about this stuff, the end times, the second coming of Jesus. But, but let's be honest, that's the exception. For most of us, we're spending too little time thinking, talking, and reorienting our lives around this. Now, now what's so humbling, what's so humbling for me to think about is that a person like Daniel, who absolutely got it right during his time on earth, he honored God with his time, his talents, and treasure. He leveraged his life not for his kingdom, but for the kingdom of God. But what's so humbling to think about is that Daniel didn't know what we know. See, Daniel lived his entire life hoping and praying for what we actually know to be true. Daniel was given this vision while living in Babylon when so much around him seemed to be headed in the complete opposite direction of what God had intended. Why would God give him this vision? It's because God wanted to remind not just Daniel, but all the people that would receive this vision through Daniel, the generations of followers that would follow him, to not orient your life around Babylon, but on the hope that is to come. See, God knows us better than we know ourselves, and he certainly knew what a hot mess Daniel was stepping into in Babylon. He knows the world that we're living in right now. He knows this cultural moment is an absolute disaster. And he constantly reminds Daniel, don't attach your faith and hope to the circumstances around you, which will ultimately and always let you down. Attach your hope to me. God in his infinite kindness to Daniel and the generations of people that would come after Daniel, those who would earnestly seek him, God said, you may not understand what's happening right now, but, but let me show you the end of the story. And again, what's so humbling, what's, what's so sobering for me is that Daniel persevered. He kept his faith. He, he remained hopeful without the good news that we so often take for granted. D Daniel didn't know what you and I know. D Daniel was never shown Jesus. See, see, we can look forward with a joyful anticipation towards the end, not because of a vision given to Daniel some 2,500 years ago, but because of the redemptive work of Jesus 500 years after Daniel left this earth. Church, God gave Daniel a vision. He gave us his son. 
We know how this story ends. The game has been rigged. Jesus already conquered death. He already conquered sin. The evil one has been defeated. So for the follower of Jesus, we look forward with a joy-filled, a hope-filled anticipation because of what Jesus has already done. I don't know what you carried in here with you today as you sat down to watch this service. And I realize that for you, because perhaps of your circumstances, all hope seems lost. Evil, it feels like it is won. Over and over and over again throughout Daniel's life, he thought the same thing. He had people telling him as much. But God, through his son, Through Jesus, he shows us the end of the story. The hope that we find in Jesus gives us hope not just in the here and the now, but for the future and forevermore. You're not suffering from anything that a resurrection can't fix. Death has been defeated. Evil has not won. As we are promised time and time and time again throughout God's word, his unchanging, always true word, he's coming back. We know how the story ends. We know who will reign triumphant. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In the end, all that will matter is Jesus. And on that day for the follower of Jesus, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new, including you. I don't know why you're going through what you're going through. I don't know why that child has wandered away. I don't know why addiction reigns in your life. I don't know why you got that diagnosis. I don't know why they left this earth so early. I don't know why you constantly seem to be dealt a bad hand. I don't know any of that. But what I know for certain is there will come a day when every tear will be wiped from your eye and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain that all of that will be gone forever and you will be made new. This is the hope that we find in Jesus. This is the hope that is offered to you. So I have two words for two different groups of people. First, for those of you who have yet to put your trust in Jesus, for those of you that are not following Jesus, I want to encourage you, the God of the universe is begging you, turn to him. Do not wait. Because make no mistake about it, this day is coming. And just as it will be utter joy for those who have put their trust in Jesus, on that day when Jesus returns, it will be utter horror for those who have not. God offers his son for your sin. That is how desperately he longs to be close to you, to have a relationship with you, 
It is God's desire that none of us would perish, that all of us would experience everlasting life with you. And he made that very, very clear when he offered up his son. And it could be as simple as wherever you're watching right now, simply bowing your head in this moment and just say, Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can't get together on my own. But I believe, I trust in your son, Jesus. I trust in his redemptive work on the cross that he died for me, for my sin. And I believe that he's coming back. From this day forward, I choose to live my life for you. Amen. And we're told that just like that, that right standing is back. That it is by faith and faith alone that we are saved. For the follower of Jesus, here's my challenge for you. Leverage your time, your talents, your resources for the kingdom of God like you have never done before. Because anything short of that is to take for granted the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. Let your life be a living sacrifice for him. To make this very, very simple, we have Easter right around the corner. We have this time of the year where a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't come walking through the doors of a church come walking through the doors of a church. But the reason they come is because the people who call this place their church home that they're bold and they actually invite. And some of you, these types of messages, they've just become white noise, but I wanna challenge you. Who might God have strategically placed in front of you in your life that you're supposed to go make that ask and even beyond that, share about what Jesus has been doing in your life? You have no idea how God may want to use you to impact somebody else's eternity.